Well, one of the things that has really been difficult for me over the last 18 months during COVID has been seeing the church at war with itself. The disunity, the disagreements, the anger, people leaving churches, people being mean to each other. And it's been a real pain. I don't know about you, but I've really grieved that in the moment of real challenge in our nation, the church has actually been at odds with one another on so many issues. And we're in a series looking at what Jesus has to say about these issues. That it's not my will be done, but his will be done. And so we're looking over this series, we're calling it Jesus and, looking at lots of different topics. So Jesus and morality, Jesus and justice, Jesus and race, Jesus and politics. These are things that have so often ripped Christians apart. And so we want to speak into them to humbly come before Jesus and say, what do you have to say about these things, Jesus? But one of the things, before we dive into the particular issues, which we will be over the next few weeks, one of the reasons I've realized over the last 18 months why we're at odds is not so much about the issue itself, but that we're starting from different places. That we have different understandings of the gospel. And your understanding of the gospel shapes how you respond to all of these other issues. And until we actually define our starting point and ensure we're all coming from the same perspective, we'll always disagree if we're coming from different places. We have to understand the gospel. Your view of the gospel is the lens through which you see all of the issues that we're facing in society. And when we have different lenses, we end up with different conclusions. And actually don't then understand how on earth could you be a Christian and think this way? It's because we're starting from different places. We're starting with different views of what the gospel of Jesus is. Now, I know that if I took this microphone that Sarah just had and went around the congregation and said, how would you describe the gospel? would all come with overlapping but also different emphases and different answers. How you define the gospel is shaped significantly by how you became a Christian. It's shaped by your parents, your pastor at your home church, the church history, maybe the Instagram pastor that you follow, the books you've read, etc., that we will bring into this room and bring into this city an understanding of the gospel that in ways overlaps with people around you but also differs. I grew up through various churches, church experiences which I would say took me through three different versions of the gospel. And I had the privilege but also the confusion of going through three different experiences. The first church I grew up in emphasized what people call the evangelical gospel, where the message is that you are a sinner. It's kind of like John 3, 16. You're a sinner. You're going to go to hell without Jesus. Jesus came to rescue you. If you believe in him, you're going to go to heaven. And therefore, I was enthusiastic about, oh, man, I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. And I was enthusiastic about telling other people. And there's much to affirm there. We'll come on to that in a minute. But that was the paradigm through which I saw everything, that we all have a critical decision to make in life about our eternal destiny, and we have to cause people to confront that question 
and put their trust in Jesus. Well, after a while, actually our church changed, we moved, and the church I was then at had a slightly different emphasis on the gospel, what I would call the blessing gospel. That is predominantly viewing its message as like Luke 15, where we are the prodigal son, we are an estranged child of a loving father who's longing for us to come back. We come back and he throws his arms around us and therefore lavish us with the blessings of now our our inheritance and our rights as sons and daughters of God. That coming to the Father is actually coming back into the house of the Father, and we have a good, good Father who just wants to bless us. And that is the gospel. So for a season, I was in that that blessing gospel where the paradigm was do the things in order to reap the inheritance that is yours by birthright in your adopted identity as children of God. We are king's kids. We are royalty. And this became the paradigm through which I lived. Very different. Not competing so much with, but very different to the John 3.16 view of the gospel. And then I went to a church which had a slightly different, again, emphasis on the gospel. It was what theologians called the Reformed gospel, which is God is perfect, holy, and just. He's a God of holy love, which means he gets angry and righteously angry at sin and the brokenness in the world. We are all morally guilty before him. We are the problem in the world. But God in his love came and did something about it. He didn't give us our just desserts, but he came and died on the cross for us. That he performed where we couldn't, and he gave us his righteousness instead of our filthy rags. And that became the paradigm through which we saw all of life. It is finished, it is done. And our life is about worshiping a God who's done it all. Now, there is much to affirm in all of these things. But suffice to say, by the end of these experiences, I was slightly confused. What is the gospel? How do I summarize the gospel? They're all slightly emphasizing different things. And when I went to seminary, I thought, how do I hold all these things together? And in fact, I realized when I went to seminary and sat down in my confused state, I realized that actually each of these gospels had much truth to them They weren't necessarily wrong. In fact, they were gloriously true in many ways, but they were incomplete. They weren't the full story. And in fact, because they were incomplete and because they weren't the full story, if I didn't know the full story, then I would be slightly led astray because anything incomplete can lead you astray. And so in seminary, I had the joy of sitting down and actually discovering the full gospel of Jesus in which these three summaries that I grew up with found their place, but found their place in a healthy way that would lead to the fullness of life in Jesus. So I'm coming to us today and asking us to reconsider the gospel of Jesus So that when we approach all the questions that we face in life around justice, race, politics, morality, we start from the same place. And many of you will have resonated with one of the three experiences that I had, that that's kind of my emphasis, that's what I grew up with. And I want to encourage you to open your hearts to a fuller gospel, 
to broaden your heart and mind with the full gospel of Jesus. This is what N.T. Wright says, which I read and greatly encouraged me. He said, the Christian faith is kaleidoscopic, and most of us are colorblind. It is multidimensional, and most of us manage to hold at most two dimensions in our heads at any one time. It is symphonic, and we can just about whistle one of the tunes. So we shouldn't be surprised if someone comes along and draws our attention to other colors and patterns that we hadn't noticed. We shouldn't be alarmed if someone sketches a third, a fourth, or even a fifth dimension that we had overlooked. We ought to welcome it if a musician plays new parts of the harmony to the tune we thought we knew. So I'm going to ask us all to open our hearts to receive from Jesus further colors further perspectives of his glorious gospel. And we start, of course, with looking at the message of Jesus himself. Now, a disclaimer before we dive in, that this is a summary in about 30 minutes of what could be a 10 lecture session, right? And so by necessity, I'm skimming a rock off the surface of these things. And therefore, I'm going to have to summarize. There's not all the nuances that I would like to draw out. I may have to summarize things in a way that you go, but hang on a minute, what about that? And they're great questions. And so what I want you to do is hear the generalities, and then you yourself go further into the details. I want to give you some resources that I think are essential for everyone who wants to ground themselves in the gospel. So for everyone, one of the best books on this is Simply Good News by Tom Wright. Someone in the break just before the last service said, but what about this? But what about this? I thought, great questions. I recommend Simply Good News by Tom Wright. I can't have coffees with everyone. <laughs> Simply Good News by Tom Wright. The other book, just as good, The King Jesus Gospel by Scott McKnight. And then if you want, if you're more visual and podcasty, then watch the films and the podcast on, by The Bible Project. Now, for those who want a chunkier read, right? The best, way to, best place to go is Surprised by Hope, N.T. Wright. And if you could all read that, then you will be greatly blessed. Alrighty. So let's stand back and look at the gospel of Jesus. The good news that Jesus himself comes to proclaim. If we're going to start anywhere with the good news, we should start with the good news of Jesus. And this good news of Jesus is summarized in Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Straight away, we hit a problem because this is nothing like what I grew up being taught the gospel was. Hang on a minute, where's the sinner's prayer? Where is the father that loves his kids has come to bless them? Where is justification by faith in here? And what we realize as we dig into it now is Jesus is painting the landscape, the story of the whole Bible through which these summary statements of the gospel can fit and find their place but he is painting a picture of the whole, which brings health to the smaller messages that we grew up with. He begins, I says, 
This is the good news. This is the gospel. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Jesus' message of the gospel was about the kingdom. 122 times in the gospels is about the kingdom of God. In the book of Acts, Jesus appears to his disciples and teaches them about the kingdom. At the end of the book of Acts, Paul is in Rome explaining to people the kingdom of God. So to understand the landscape of the gospel, we have to understand what Jesus means by kingdom. For this is the key to understanding the whole. Now many of us in America and in England shy away from the word kingdom, particularly Americans hearing the word kingdom from a Brit. Here we go, Gage trying to make America great Britain again. No, 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 no. The word kingdom in Greek is basileia, and it refers to what we would traditionally think of a kingdom where someone is in charge, a monarch. Could be a president, could be Congress, someone who has authority, and the people under that authority submit to the will and the rule and the ways of that authority. They obey. This is the point of a kingdom. And the story of the Bible is simply this, the story of competing kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. And I want to look at the whole Bible as this great story of God inviting humanity into the design that He made for them, the design for life and joy and flourishing and peace and mercy and justice as a way of, as the fruit of coming under His rule and reign as the king of all kings. And the great story is whether we will accept the invitation to come under the king and in the kingdom of God. So, I have four chapters, four plot themes throughout Scripture to understand the whole Bible as the kingdom of God. So, we have a picture here of the four stages of the kingdom of God throughout the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Let's quickly go through the whole of the Bible together. <laughs> Chapter one in Genesis. God creates the pattern of the kingdom of God. Now, Adam and Eve's figures of humanity are living in relationship to God as king. He is in charge. They are under his authority. They are placed in the garden to co-rule with God, to rule under his wisdom and rule. They are to care for, rule over, bring out the beauty of creation. Eden was a small, a pure but small environment that they were to expand and multiply to fill the whole world, which is why the picture of this tree here is rich, but it's not blossoming with fruit yet because creation was full of potential that humanity was to come and nurture and feed and enjoy so that it would reach the beautiful potential that God had for it. Adam and Eve were royalty in that sense. They were made in his image, which in the ancient Near East was language to represent a God, a king on earth. Our rule was to care for his creation, to multiply, and to bring out all of its potential of beauty and goodness. Now, that happened for about two chapters. In chapter three, 
the representatives of, of humanity, Adam and Eve, decided not to submit their lives to the authority of God, to come out of the kingdom of God into our own kingdom, to reject the rule, to rebel against the good and loving rule of God, and to set up shop for ourselves. We don't need any king. We'll be ourselves kings. Don't tell us what to do. You are not the boss of me, whatever it may be. And it was very quickly in chapter 3 we see for the next few chapters the, the rapid escalation into violence, greed, jealousy, and murder. Represented by this picture of the tree is in a winter of discontent. A winter of death and pain. Now, the beautiful thing in this story is in Genesis 3, just at the time as humanity is rebelling against the authority of the king, that the king, God, actually loves these rebellious people and actually promises that he will not let his creation, he will not let humanity reap the just deserts of their rebellion, that he will restore creation, he will restore his kingdom, he will bring beauty and goodness back to this world and sets in place a plan, a rescue plan, a healing plan, a restoration plan, a redemption plan to see goodness and love and beauty restored again. And so he plots a trajectory. He plots this amazing plan that he calls a man called Abraham, and he says, through your people, through your descendants, I will form a nation that will begin to understand what it is like to come back under the rule of God. They won't have palaces because they're not in charge. They'll have temples where I live by my presence because I am the God in whom they worship and trust. And out of this seed, I will bring healing to all the world. Now, the problem, as you read the Old Testament, is the ambition and the promise is right, but there seems to be something wrong with humanity that we just can't do it. That the story of Israel is that God is promising, this is the way, come back, come back, but we still rebel. There are Adam and Eve in each of our hearts. And something called sin has warped us like a cancer that cannot be operated on, that we can't seem to get our act together that we keep on trying to be our own bosses, our own kings. And so you see every king of Israel had its high points, but then it all ended in disaster. And in that pain came this prophetic lament of, will this world ever be put back to right again? And at the end of the Old Testament, these prophets are starting to prophesy, God, God's promise will be fulfilled, but we can't do it ourselves because we are all Adam and Eve. We all reject his rule and reign because of something toxic within us. So a divine king, God himself is going to come as king. He's going to come and fix all things. He's going to fix humanity that we can join him in renewing and redeeming this creation in which we live in. And so they were waiting. The people of God of Israel were waiting we're waiting for this divine king to appear. Imagine what it was like, therefore, when you were on the shores of the River Jordan and this rabbi came along declaring, the kingdom of God has arrived. That in Jesus, it suddenly dawned on people that this is the divine king that we've been longing for and waiting for. And it's in the birth, death, death, resurrection, and enthronement of Jesus, that the next chapter comes of redemption, that the kingdom starts to grow once again, that Jesus 
demonstrates his healing power. He's bringing light back into darkness. He's bringing healing to sickness. He's bringing love to hatred. You read the Gospels, and he's going around and demonstrating this is the kingdom of God. Demons are cast out of people. The blind see. The lame walk. The estranged find community. The dead are raised. Oh, my word, this is the beginning of the great renewal of all things. Of course, that wouldn't happen if he didn't deal with the, the root issues. And so he went to the cross, and on the cross, he took on the toxicity of the cancer of sin of all humanity and defeated it on the cross, defeated our enemy Satan on the cross, and defeated death on the cross, that he rose again. And the great sign of the resurrection is that all of our enemies have been defeated, and the new life has begun. He comes out of the tomb, declaring the day of new creation. He calls a community together and says, you are now my people, my family from different tribes, ethnicities, and races. You're all one in my family. I'm going to fill you with my Holy Spirit that you can join me now in seeing the first fruits of this new healing and redemption to all of the world. That makes sense then of Jesus' invitation, doesn't it? Where he didn't give people a sinner's prayer. He said, follow me. Repent and believe. These mean, these had very significant meanings in the first century, which was to follow me meant stop following your own way and follow me, which is the way of life, to come under my rule and reign. Repent is not to say sorry. Repent is to change direction, which means to stop worshiping yourself as king, and I'm going to start worshiping Jesus as king. I'm going to stop just doing my own thing because look where that's getting the world, but I actually, maybe Jesus as the creator of the world, know what he's doing. And if we humbly submit under his rule and reign, human flourishing and healing can begin. Repent. Isn't say sorry and get on with your life. Repent was turn away from one authority structure, which is you, and actually surrender to a different authority structure, the beautiful reign and rule of King Jesus. To be filled with his presence. And find yourself going out into the world to be his ambassadors, to start living his way, to start doing the things he called us to do in obedience to him, that we may participate in the redemption of all things, to go into darkness and bring light, to go into injustice and bring justice, to go into creation and bring healing and start caring for this place that God gave us to take care of. To start being Adam and Eve with the power of the Holy Spirit to do what they failed to do. The surprising thing about Jesus' message was that he said that this wouldn't happen instantaneously. He said it's going to come in two phases. It's going to come now in appetizer form. You're going to taste a bit of the kingdom here and there. You're going to see healings here and there. You're going to see justice here and there. And the more you're leaning in and praying, your kingdom come, the more you're going to see. But you're also you're going to see this ongoing battle with darkness that is not yet utterly destroyed. It's been defeated, but not destroyed. And therefore, you're going to live in what theologians call this now and not yet kingdom, where you're going to lean in and see a lot of Jesus' kingdom renewing all things, but you're also going to lament and see a lot of pain and suffering. But he said he promises one day, and this is the final stage, one day he will come and restore all things. Final slide at the back. Restoration. He says, 
The end of Revelation is that he will come back again and heaven will come down to earth and the two will merge once again and the brokenness of this world will be healed. The potential will fully come out and the end of Revelation is therefore there will be no more pain, no more sickness, no more disease, no more suffering for the old order of things have passed away and Jesus has finished his project of love to bring us back and to heal all things. See, this is the gospel of Jesus. Now, if this is the gospel of Jesus, it makes sense then that these other gospels that we live out and live into, thinking this is the full story, we realize, oh, they're only bits of the puzzle. They're only bits of the puzzle, and if they're only bits of the puzzle, and I'm not living into the full story, things could go wrong. And that was my experience of growing up in these different gospels, which were partial and true, but incomplete. And I had to go on a journey of allowing God to expand my heart to see the full picture of the kingdom of God at work in this world and to allow my heart to expand and move beyond, not leave aside, but to move beyond just a narrow view of what I had been brought up with. And I want to encourage and draw you into that today, pastorally, just to bring us all into a full picture of the gospel so that we can actually interpret what is going on in the world today and the choices we have, the decisions we make in the light of the gospel of Jesus. I had to rethink the evangelical gospel. I said at the start, this gospel is summarized in John 3.16 that we are all sinners and we're going to hell and Jesus loves us and therefore died for us and therefore we have a choice of our eternal destiny if you put your trust in Jesus. And there's much to affirm in this because it does affirm the, the need for each of us to decide. Am I going to follow King Jesus or am I going to follow my own way? That none of us are born into being a Christian. We all have a personal decision to make. I love the affirmation that God loves us and therefore has come to rescue us. He says, I've come to seek and save the lost. I love the fact that it shows the beauty of the grace of Jesus Christ. That in our most broken state, he loved us. But the problem with this truncated view of the gospel for me was how I grew up with it and didn't know what to do with this thing called discipleship. I had no idea what to do with this thing called discipleship because I thought, well, this is great. My sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. I've got my ticket to heaven. Well, what do I do with the rest of my life? Do I just live life like everyone else and just say to people, hey, but where are you going to go when you die? It had a crisis of what do I do with the other six days of my life once I come out of Sundays? And so my Christianity was dominated by questions that you may have experienced these of about, can I lose my salvation? Like, what's the role of doing things? Because if I'm forgiven past, present, and future, and I'm going to heaven, then I just want to make sure that I don't lose my ticket. So therefore, the question became, what's the bare minimum I need to keep doing to keep my ticket to heaven? You know, how many times will God forgive me? Or I remember in youth group in particular, when you're having that dating sex talk and the youth pastor says what he has to say, and I raise my question and go, look, just cut to the chase, how far can I go? 
You know, what's, how far can I go and not lose my salvation? You know, it was about sin management. It was, and holiness, the only thing holiness meant was, man, I guess I don't, I, I don't want God to be angry with me, but I don't know why he'd be angry with me because he loves me and forgave me, but I, I guess I don't want to do the unforgivable sin and lose my salvation. Becoming a Christian was about the bare minimum behavior. And I realized that what I'd done was replaced the story of the gospel of Jesus with the gospel of a ticket to heaven. And I separated discipleship from salvation, but in the lens of the Jesus gospel, discipleship is the road to salvation. Because discipleship, I mean, salvation for Jesus was to decide I no longer live according to my own free will. I'm going to live and follow the way of Jesus, which is called discipleship. So discipleship isn't something after salvation. Becoming a disciple is salvation. It's to then for the rest of your life learn, oh my word, there's even more to surrender to King Jesus than I thought. Discipleship in the nature of the message of Jesus was to follow him with your time, with your talents, with your treasure. It meant to become obedient to King Jesus. That's what it meant to be a follower of him. It's why Dallas Willard wrote this. He said, if your preaching of the gospel does not naturally lead people to apprentice under Jesus as the logical next step, then you are not preaching the gospel of Jesus. The other problem wasn't just discipleship, but of what I call escapism. That it gave what I would say is an ancient heresy called Gnosticism. It gave a Gnostic view of the Christian faith that anything physical and this world is not to be cared for because it's going to burn and it's going to ultimately die because we are all off to heaven that we are going to actually escape this place. I've got my ticket to a different place. And therefore, we shouldn't bother with doing anything down here except telling people to get to heaven. And in fact, doing anything to bring justice and mercy and goodness to this place is kind of like someone on the sinking Titanic deciding to redecorate. It's like it's a waste of time. Get people on the lifeboats. That's the whole job, because this is not our home. It's going to burn, and so we need to get out of here. Don't waste your time on things like justice or peacemaking or cultural renewal or caring for creation. It hit home, I remember once in youth group, we were so excited about getting out of this world and getting to our home in heaven, and actually, they're all, remember the, the ozone layer you know, like, oh no, the ozone layer's going to open up, we're all going to burn. It was like in late 90s, I think it was, or late 80s. And CFC gases, which were in like deodorant, were the cause. I remember in youth group thinking, well, hang on a minute. If we are to see the coming of Jesus when this place dies, we're all going to go to heaven. I guess the sooner we kill this place, the better. <laughs> so we would have like, every, yeah, we were like spraying deodorant. One for me, one for Jesus. The sooner we get rid of this place, the better. 
The problem is it's the opposite, the opposite of the biblical story. We were called into this story in Genesis 1, 1 and 2 to care for this place. This is God's good creation. The parables of Jesus are, we are stewards of His creation. And actually, all the verses and the summary of the Gospels and the summary of Paul's writings and Revelation is not so much as we are going to get out of here and go to a different place, but actually heaven, Jerusalem, comes down to earth. The new heavens and the new earth are this earth, and the heavens overlap, that we don't escape. There is a place where we go before the return of Jesus, which is traditionally called heaven, but the ultimate renewal of all things is this world is renewed is healed. Sin and Satan are taken out of it, and that our home is fully restored. We are citizens of heaven because that we are meant to bring heaven to earth, not that we are to escape earth and go to heaven. And therefore, when it comes to what we do in this world about issues of injustice, about do we get involved in politics? Do we get involved in our cities? Do we get involved in our schools? Do we get involved to bring justice and mercy and light wherever there is darkness? If you think our job is just to get out of here and leave it, it's all going to die. Or is it we are in that picture to start bringing the first fruits of the future kingdom in the present? to start to give people a taste of this is what deliverance looks like. This is what mercy looks like. This is what Jesus looked like. And one day the whole earth will feel this. It won't just be appetizers. It will come like a mighty rushing river. The Reformed Gospel blessed me significantly. Remember what I said about the Reformed Gospel? It, was, it, it actually focuses our eyes on what happened on the cross, that Jesus took all of our sin, took all of our own deserved wrath onto himself. It's this great divine exchange that we sometimes sing about and preach, and I loved it so much, and I still love it to this day, that on the cross, the perfect, sinless, sacrificial lamb of Jesus took my sin upon himself, that in place I got his perfect, righteous life, imputed righteousness that it's called, that before God now I stand justified, just as if I'd never sinned, because he took all my sin from me. Justification by faith. And I still remember the day that singing Amazing Grace song, oh no, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. I remember weeping as I had a, an image of the pure and holy, righteous Lamb of God, Jesus, on the cross, loved me so much that he would die for such a sinner as me. And I affirm, I so beautifully affirm the revelation that we all need again, that we are the problem in the world, that we can't blame other people. We are what is wrong with this world. We are breaking this world. And yet God in his mercy comes down to rescue sinners like you and me. But again, just by itself led to some problems in my life. The problems of discipleship, I didn't know what to do with discipleship. In fact, the problem was even exacerbated because I celebrated so much, it's all him, I've done nothing, I can't do anything. And I ran away from legalism and works righteousness. That in my own story, it was like, well, anything that Jesus commanded me to do was now a problem. 
Because Jesus, it's not about what you do. You've done it for me. Anything about transformation that was about cooperating with God in doing things that would draw closer to him or closer to him in the mission field, wherever it be, I was reticent about because, man, I don't want to slip back into works righteousness. It's all about him, not about me. And it bred some, a discipleship paralysis in my heart. I did not know. And if anything felt painful, like getting up at five in the morning to read my Bible, it would be, this can't be from God because Jesus done it for me. I can't do anything. I don't want to slip back into legalism. The problem is, of course, that grace is opposed to earning, not effort. And when we come, the story of King Jesus is actually, think about it this way, is actually he, we are doing things according to our own will. And the whole point of Christianity is to do the things of Jesus. Now we get in to the kingdom of God by doing nothing. Because we need saving and rescuing. That is the beauty of justification by faith. But now we're in. Hey, guess what? Half the Old New Testament is Jesus commanding us to do stuff. A new command I give to you, he says. Sermon on the Mount is full of stuff. Do this, do that. And then I read the Sermon Sermon on the Mount and thought, do this, do that. Okay, that sounds like legalism, Jesus. But maybe you've done it for me. So now I'll just receive the benefits of it. And then you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus says, oh, and by the way, blessed are those who hear these words and do them. Because then your house will be like a house who builds, your, a man will, you will be like a man who builds his house on a rock. Not by believing in me, but by doing these things. You remember, the gospel is about now, no longer doing your own will, but doing his will. That's the gospel. And I, real, I recognized I'd fallen into cheap grace. I can do whatever I want. I'm justified. I'd fallen into lazy. God doesn't care about any, any kind of immorality anymore. I can do what I want. I've been forgiven. And I was missing the whole point of we are actually, as Christians, disciples of the way of Jesus. And as we are discipled into the ways of Jesus, as we fall under his rule and reign, that's where the fruit really kicks in of love and purpose and fulfillment. And then finally, the blessing gospel. So much to affirm here. Luke 15 and the parable of the prodigal son is justifiably one of the most beautiful parables of Jesus. And I love thinking, oh my word, God is not an angry judge. He's a loving, he's a good, good father who loves to bring us in and adopt us as his kids. We now share in the inheritance of Jesus. This is all good and worthy. And God loves to bless. Remember he said to Israel, I will bless you to be your blessing. But here's the challenge I I realize that if that's your only paradigm without the kingship of Jesus is we can so easily bring our kingdom into that gospel and go, my kingdom is, this is what I want in life. I've got a vision of my preferred future. It's called the American dream or or the British dream. You know, it's a beautiful house. It's a successful career. It's basically everything this world says will make you happy, leisure, pleasure, and treasure. 
You go, that's what I want in life. How amazing. God's a good, good father who's going to give me leisure, pleasure, treasure. This is amazing. And so we come into the kingdom of God and we're told, you know, the the world isn't going to help you make the most of your life come in and your best life is yet to come because Jesus is now going to be the genie in the bottle to give you everything you ever dreamed of. He is a dispenser of blessing. I remember growing up, this is too good to be true. Oh, my word. And therefore, it became a transactional faith. The more I do this, the more blessings I get out. It became slot machine Christianity. The key to the kingdom, confession, faith, obedience. They became my currency to put into the slot machine. If I did enough of those, I could pull the lever and God's riches will pour out towards me. And I got to say, I realize there is so much wrong with this. It destroys people. It destroys the gospel altogether. I realize that most people who followed this didn't last for very long because they realize that Jesus is going to be no one's slot machine. He's calling us under his kingdom. He says, follow me. He doesn't really respond well to someone saying to Jesus, follow me. And I recognize that this gospel over-promised significantly that I thought, man, it turned the devotional practices of a walk with Jesus, of relationship and intimacy, it turned them into transactional currency. The more faith I have as if it was a commodity, the more confession I had that if I just speak things, it's going to come. If I actually just show up to church and serve, then all of these things as I'm doing to get from God. In other words, I'm using God for my own gain. And it destroys the gospel. It destroyed my own spirituality. And eventually God says, no, I'm not. Because actually your, vi- your vision of the kingdom is nothing to do with me. I'm not about leisure, pleasure, treasure. The surprising nature of Jesus was about sacrifice, generosity, and other-centeredness. Oh, hang on. He said, I'm not going to play that game. And I almost gave up on my faith because after six years of trying and putting in the slot machine all of my obedience, all of my confession, all of my tithing, my breakthrough wasn't coming. My job wasn't here. My success wasn't arriving. And I tried for six years to keep up with it. I'd go to churches that would just speak breakthroughs coming just around the corner until eventually I realized, I actually asked, asked God, God, if my breakthrough is just around the corner, can I just ask, how many corners are there? Because my breakthrough, my job, my success, my finances apparently are just around the corner. I get prophecies about it every year. This year is going to be the year of blessing, and it's December 31st, and it didn't happen. And my gut feel of looking at me and my friends who are in this movement was like, you can probably last about six years before reality sets in, and you go, I'm out. And what you do, sadly, is either give up on God altogether, or my prayer is you return to the gospel of Jesus that his kingdom is not about leisure, pleasure, treasure. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy. But the way he's going to fill your life with righteousness, peace, and joy is not through things. It's going to be through him. That this kingdom is not about the trappings of materialism and consumerism. It's about seeing his kingdom break in. And sometimes he's going to bless you that you can bless others in that way. And sometimes he's going to close the door and allow suffering into your life. Because as Jesus says, sometimes blessed are those who suffer for my name's sake. It's a bigger story, friends. The challenge is on Instagram, mostly we're going to see the 
the gospel of blessing. The biggest churches will be the people who are looking for leisure, pleasure, treasure. And Jesus has put out there as he's going to give you that if you just hang in there long enough. And over the last 18 months, this has all been exposed. And I believe this is a time for all of us to come back and say, thank you for these partial gospels. Thank you. Because there's truth in each and every one of them. But there's health only when I put them into the wider story of the kingdom of Jesus. Bringing my life under his rule and reign. Worshipping him as the king of all kings. And laying all my life down as an utter surrender to him. When we as a people surrender to King Jesus, the gospel starts to come on fire. So as we worship now, what gospel are you living in? And maybe this is the time to go, thank you for my inheritance. And I value the truth there, but I want to live into a bigger story. That I'm here as the ambassador of Jesus, filled with his spirit to see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I'm here to see light brought into the darkness, justice to the pain of this world, mercy to those who are in anxiety, to bring unity where the church is divided, to be peacemakers, to go into politics, to go into education, to go into the streets of where we live and be salt and light for Jesus, that we may participate in the great story of Jesus, that though we deserved nothing, he has come to renew us, that we may renew all things through the power of his spirit and in his name. This is the good news of Jesus. Let's stand together.